0: I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. The last three years have been a bit of a roller coaster, no? I remember in March of 2020, fiercely debating if and how we could close our synagogue. I'd never spent so much time talking medicine to medical professionals in my whole life, and my three siblings are doctors. In my mind, the light at the end of the tunnel was the coronavirus vaccine. Once that was widely available, I thought the pandemic would be over. Turned out to be a little more complicated than that. Today, it's my honor to consult with one of America's great physicians. Peter Hotez is Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine where he is also the co-director of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development and Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical Pediatrics. His work on Corbivax, a low-cost, no-patent COVID-19 vaccine, has saved millions of lives and earned him a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. But what really strikes me about Dr. Hotez is his moral leadership. As a scientist and the father of an autistic child, he has been a fearless, an unapologetic, lifelong advocate for vaccines, even in the face of unprecedented anti-science and anti-Semitic hate. Dr. Hotez, welcome to In These
1: Times. Oh, Thank you, Rabbi. I'm thrilled to be here. I wanted to ask you uh, first, where are
0: we in terms of the pandemic? So we've been at this now for three years. Are we in a better place? Are we still in the Teeth of the pandemic, what should we be thinking about?
1: Well, we're in a better place in terms of the United States because so many people have been vaccinated or have had been vaccinated and have had some breakthrough infection and then boosted on top of that some level of hybrid immunity and and that's a big reason why we're not losing two to three thousand Americans a day like we were during that horrible alpha wave in the winter of 2021 or the delta wave in the summer fall of 2021. But we are still losing a lot of people to COVID because not enough people have been vaccinated or boosted and not enough Americans have gotten the bivalent booster. We've had now this new wave from one of what I call the Scrabble variants. I call it a Scrabble variant because these new variants all use High value Scrabble letters like X and B and F and Q. So this one is XBB 1.5. And it's quite transmissible. And so it has been a serious wave. You know, we tend to undercount now because we're. So much We're doing so much home testing, so we have to rely on other metrics such as wastewater sampling and positivity and hospitalizations. It has been a pretty serious wave up in the northeast where you are in New York, maybe coming down now somewhat. So hopefully we're now getting towards the other side of this XBB 1.5 wave. It's still a serious problem. Further south on the eastern seaboard in the Carolinas and numbers are still around in Texas. But the hope is that as we move towards the spring, this current wave will be behind us. And then the question I'm always asked, hey, Doc, what's next after that? And I don't think we fully know, um, in part because of what's happened in China. China has just been devastated by this massive wave of almost biblical proportions in terms of some estimates, you know, up to 30,000 deaths a day in China. Maybe we're going to reach another million deaths. So that's really sobering. And with that kind of unmitigated transmission in an under vaccinated population with vaccines and Chinese vaccines don't work very well against the variants, that could mean that we could see some new variants emerge as we head into the spring or summer. So it's a very long winded way saying that we will soon be on the other side of this XBB 1.5 wave. But I, I can't promise you that that another wave may be out of China is still forthcoming as we head into the spring or summer.
0: Who are these 500 Americans a day who are dying? Are they unvaccinated and immunocompromised people or are they people who were dying before only, uh, only in uh, lesser numbers?
1: Definitely some of the unvaccinated. They were lucky thus far to escape COVID and now they've gotten it. So no question, a lot of them are unvaccinated. There are some people who have gotten one or two doses of the vaccine, but have not taken the bivalent booster. And that's a big mistake also. You need the booster on a regular basis in order to stay out of the hospital. And this new bivalent booster has the added benefit of giving you some cross-neutralizing antibodies against the Scrabble variants like XBB 1.5. Only 15% of the American people have gotten their bivalent booster. It's way too low. So there are a lot of unnecessary hospitalizations and deaths become of that. There's a little bit of back and forth and controversy as to whether some of those deaths might be among people who happen to be positive for COVID but are not necessarily severely ill from COVID but are actually dying from other causes. And, and that's always been thrown up there across the pandemic. But I think we should assume most of those deaths are actually due to COVID in unvaccinated and under undervaccinated individuals.
0: What you're saying is that if you're well-vaccinated, from what I gather, you strongly recommend getting the latest bivalent vaccine. But if you're well-vaccinated and you have no underlying immunocompromised health, then you should feel relatively safe?
1: So unfortunately, the reality is the goalposts have changed. And before it was during the Delta wave early in the the last half of 2021 and and early B1 Omicron wave was all about being vaccinated. Now it's not enough just to be vaccinated. It needs to be vaccinated and boosted. And specifically, you need to be boosted with that booster that became available in, in September. The other question I'm being asked is, you know, there are a lot of people who are all in, they're saying, "Hey doc, I'm one of the early adopters of the bivalent booster, as I was, you know, that got boosted in September, and now we're heading into the soon the 6-month point. Should I get a second bivalent booster?" And and I feel the answer is probably yes, but I but we haven't had any clarity yet about that from the FDA or CDC, so I've been encouraging them to to come out with a statement of whether it's time to get a second bivalent booster.
0: So what you're describing is we're still in the midst of this pandemic. We're we're acting at least in our part of the, the world, New York City. We're acting as if it's basically behind us. There are very few people wearing masks. Do you think we're being too nonchalant about this?
1: Yeah, that's the worry, especially if you're not vaccinated and boosted. And I think that's where, that's where the greatest vulnerability is. You don't want to be in a crowded indoor gathering, especially in this cold winter, without having that bivalent booster. And, and soon we may need to ask you to take another bivalent booster.
0: Why do you think so few people have gotten boosted, in particular with the latest booster? I think you said 15% of Americans.
1: Well, I think it's a combination of not stressing the urgency enough from the health and human services agencies and not getting the data out there or explaining the data showing, yes, there's absolutely benefit from getting the bivalent booster. And of course, the United States has got a pretty aggressive anti-vaccine lobby and that does everything it can to discredit the effectiveness and safety of vaccines. And there's... All of this disinformation out there claiming that people are dying from the vaccines, which is absolute nonsense. It's all COVID, the virus, not the vaccines. Mm.
0: There's this lingering fear, not among uh, anti-vaxxers, people who are normal people, you know, who just don't want to stick some uh, vaccine into them every three, four, six months. Can you understand that?
1: You know, if you think about most of the pediatric vaccines we give to our kids, you give a series of primary immunizations, you wait six months to a year, and then you boost, and then you're good for five to ten years. And that's actually what I thought was going to happen. You know, when you, and if you listen to me early on, When the vaccines were first rolled out i was one of the first to say it's not one and done and two and done but it could be three and done because that's what you do you give your primary immunization those first two doses wait six months to a year and then you boost and during the delta wave i was looking like a pretty smart guy because that's exactly what was happening if you'd gotten that booster you're really at over 90 percent protective immunity against severe illness and death the surprise was with that booster, the mRNA booster, it didn't hold up for years, but for months, you know, it started to go down against protection against hospitalization after about six months. And exactly why? I don't think we really understand. Maybe the mRNA is not translating into enough protein to induce that durable immunity. So that that is one of the disappointing aspects of mRNA, eventually, you know, it might get figured out and tweaked in order to give longer-lasting protection. But it is a a new technology. I, I feel it is safe. I get whatever booster I can. I think it's important. But uh, in the long run, there might be some merit to investing in a technology other than mRNA in order to give you that longer-lasting protection. And of of course, I have a total conflict of interest in making that statement because we've developed our own recombinant protein vaccine technology at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine. that. Led to the production of Corbivax in India. That's been given to over 75 million kids in India, and almost 100 million doses. And a second version for Indonesia, uh, known as Indovac, that's been giving to millions and millions of people. So, and I think you know there'd be some benefit of bringing a vaccine like that to the U.S., but there are a lot of complexities there. Among the discussions I've had with the with the White House and CDC and FDA is maybe bring a vaccine like that into play, so we don't have to ask Americans to get boosted on such a frequent basis. But for now, I remain a full-throated champion of, of mRNA vaccine technology.
0: So we've been at this now for three years. You've been at the center of it. And you've been at the center not only of the science, but how the science should translate into social policy. Looking back now at everything we know, I I don't hold it against, certainly not against doctors. You know, I don't hold it against anybody if they were making decisions based on the best information they had. And in retrospect, they had additional information that they didn't have before that might have led them to a different social policy. But now, three years later, knowing what we do know, about this virus, do you think we hit we made the right balance in terms of social policy, uh, with in particular with respect to closing schools and the emotional weight that that imposed both on the uh, children as well as on parents, and the general shutdown of uh, commerce. Do you think that balance was right in the end? Since it looks like the vaccines actually don't prevent infection as much as dire consequences if you are infected.
1: Well, remember in the early on, the vaccines were designed to prevent against symptomatic illness. They weren't designed to prevent against infection. But what happened was during the alpha wave, there were studies conducted in Israel that showed, hey, you know what? Against the alpha wave, these vaccines are not only protecting against symptomatic illness, they're also protecting against asymptomatic infection, about 90%. And that was why the CDC lifted the mask restrictions at that point, because, you know, if you were fully vaccinated two doses during the alpha wave, it was having that effect of actually interrupting transmission. We kind of forget about that. And to this day, the vaccines do have an impact on getting COVID positive. It's not as dramatic as preventing hospitalizations, but there's still some effect. The way I divide this is before vaccines and after vaccines became available, because people forget during that horrible year of 2020, before we had the vaccines, we were losing a lot of school teachers also. I know because I was doing a lot of in-service instructions to school boards, to teachers, to do everything they can to keep themselves safe. But they were scared and they were worried, and I understood that. So I understand the reason for some of the school closures in 2020. But once the vaccines became available, I think that really freed us up a lot. The problem was... Here in the South and the Southern states, places like Texas and elsewhere where I am, too many people refused a vaccine during that awful Delta wave. So after the Biden administration announced in the spring of 2021, anyone who wanted to get a vaccine could, and that official date was May 1, 2021. And similar dates in Europe and Canada, the deaths stop. In the US and the southern states, the deaths continued. For instance, in Texas, of the ninety thousand lives lost, there broke down about half and half of those before vaccines were available to after vaccines were available, because so many Texans refused to take a COVID vaccine despite its widespread availability. And so the loss of life from people refusing to take a COVID vaccine was absolutely staggering. They called it the great Texas COVID tragedy. 40,000 Texans were victims of to all of this anti-vaccine activism. And in the US, the number is about 200,000. 200,000 Americans needlessly lost their lives because they refused to take a COVID vaccine. And the, and the loss of life is still ongoing. And it was so much of that was actually preventable because the vaccines were working 90% or more against preventing death. And analysis all pointed to the same thing. Overwhelmingly, those refusing to get a vaccine were in conservative states, red states, and the redder the county, the lower the vaccination rate and higher the death rate. And this reflects the changing nature of the anti vaccine movement. It went from a lot of false assertions that vaccines cause autism. And that's how I got involved in it, because I have a daughter with autism and intellectual disabilities and wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism to go up against it. So I became public enemy number one or two, but it gave me a front row seat to what the anti-vaccine movement's all about. And then about seven, eight years ago, even before the pandemic, because we were taking some of the wind out of their sails or on the phony baloney or on autism, they became a political movement linked to this concept. of health freedom medical freedom on the far right and especially down in texas where they were adopted by the republican tea party started getting political action money and parents were refusing to give their kids vaccines out of this concept of health freedom medical freedom you can't tell us what to do and that's what came off the rails during COVID 19. and so Now, if you look at the nature of the anti-vaccine movement, it's very much a political movement. This was amplified by members of the House Freedom Caucus, and they used a lot of Holocaust imagery, which was really disgusting. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the representative from Georgia, called people who vaccinate you as medical brown shirts, using Nazi paramilitary analogy, and they were parading around with yellow Jewish stars with the word "no vax" in it, that made it look like Hebrew letters, mocking the Holocaust, and it had a terrible effect. And it was amplified every night on Fox News, so it was a whole political ecosystem that caused a massive loss in life. Too often we refer to it as misinformation or disinformation or random stuff that appears on the internet or we call it the infodemic. And it was none of those things. It was deliberate and it was politically motivated and it killed, I estimate, 200,000 Americans during the Delta wave. And early BA1 Omicron wave because people refused to vaccine and and it's something that I'm writing about in my next book which will be published by Johns Hopkins University Press called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science: A Scientist Warning how so many Americans lost their lives because of this stuff.
0: Many of these people who refused to take the COVID vaccine did vaccinate themselves and their children with other vaccines, childhood vaccines. If that's the case, what was it about the COVID vaccine that gave them this kind of opposition to it?
1: I think it was they were victims. They were targeted by the far right, and they more or less got the message that if you want to show allegiance to whatever that thing was and with political extremism on the far right, you shouldn't get vaccinated. And they died in massive numbers. I mean, it's just such a horrific tragedy. And unfortunately, it's still with us because we still are losing a lot of unvaccinated Americans to COVID-19, although the numbers are not as dramatic as they were during the Delta wave.
0: Are the people who are refusing to take vaccines now, are they what you would consider to be anti-science? Or are they just, there's something about the COVID vaccine that creates this opposition?
1: Well, you know, if you were to ask them, there are about a dozen talking points that people use to explain why they weren't going to get a vaccine. And it ranged from everything from the seemingly plausible to, you know, hey, how could these vaccines be legit since they came up so quickly? Well, you can explain to them, actually, groups like ours were working on coronaviruses for 10 years. And that's what led to all the research showing the spike protein's a target of the virus, how you deliver the spike protein so these vaccines did not appear like magic, but there was some unfortunate messaging that the companies used to tell their shareholders otherwise, all the way to the crazy stuff, right? You had the person at the Ohio legislature who was sticking bobby pins and keys on her forehead because she claimed she was magnetized and by the vaccines. And of course, total theater of the absurd, the bobby pins and keys fell right off. But the real truth is that even if you went through those talking points one by one, they still weren't getting vaccinated because they might have used those talking points to justify But what they really were saying was, I'm not getting vaccinated out of political belonging and allegiance.
0: Did you find that what you're describing is unique to the American political system? Or did these kind of arguments in these dimensions erupt in other places around the world as well?
1: You saw some with other authoritarian regimes like Bolsonaro's Brazil or Orbán's Hungary, but it was clearly at its peak in the United States, especially in the southern United States, in the Mountain West and conservative areas of the country. But now it's contaminating other parts of the world, so you're starting to see this in Canada. With the Freedom Convoy, you're starting to see it in Western Europe, Central Europe, you're seeing it in Germany, where again, it's linked to far-right groups. And now it's even contaminating low- and middle-income countries. So you're starting to see some of the same anti-vaccine rhetoric from the far-right. The Fauci memes and the garbage from Fox News show up in sub-Saharan African countries. So I have an article in Nature Reviews Immunology. It says, I worry this is going to spill over into all vaccines and could really reverse a lot of global public health gains.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Are you seeing this contamination flowing into other mm-hmm. areas of medicine, that in particular preventative medicine, that is important for public health?
1: We may be starting to see it affect all vaccines, including routine childhood vaccinations. So there are a couple of surveys out there showing the same people who question. COVID vaccines refuse. COVID vaccines are now balking at the routine childhood immunizations for measles and pertussis and polio. And so that's a concern. And a lot of vaccine policy for childhood vaccines is set at the state level. So you're starting to see a lot of wackadoodle legislation being filed in the Texas legislature, for instance, where I am. DeSanctis, he wants to have a Vaccine Integrity Committee, which sounds like it's going to be a witch hunt, and now you're going to see it. I'm worried with the House GOP and the Freedom Caucus that they're already proposing to hold investigative hearings against vaccines from either the Oversight Committee or the Judiciary Committee. There's a special subcommittee now that's been formed around covid 19, which will include targeting vaccines. And I think that's going to have a dangerous effect.
0: You've been at the center of this personally. You've been the target of some of this hateful uh, sentiment against medicine and science in general, and, and as well as against some of the world's great experts like you. And you've spoken about the link between that kind of radicalism and anti-Semitism could you expound on that for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's taken two forms. I get a lot of threats, either on emails or mail sent to my house or on social media. And it's of two kinds. One, I make it fairly well known that I'm Jewish. And so there's a lot of direct anti-Semitic threats and language that's used. I've had now, twice now, swastikas sent to my home by the U.S. Postal Service in having not only the Texas Medical Center and Houston Police Department help, but also the ADL has been fabulous. Anti-defamation has been really useful in, in, help, in helping explain all this to me. But the other way it manifests is, it's a little more indirect, and I'm still trying to understand it myself. The anti-vaccine lobby uses a lot of Holocaust imagery when they're explaining vaccines. So for instance, because they claim that vaccines are experimental, which they're not. They'll compare me to Dr. Mengele, for instance, the infamous SS doctor. Or so they're very quick to use Nazi imagery. They'll say I'm um, that eventually all the vaccine scientists will be tried in a after a tribunal in Nuremberg and I'll be hanged and all this kind of terrible stuff. So there's a lot of misappropriation of the Holocaust, mocking the Holocaust. And even if you could argue that's not overtly anti-Semitic. In my view, it is in, in a way because it's trivializing the Holocaust. And also, they clearly know that for someone who's Jewish and whose family suffered terribly dur- during the Holocaust, they know that has to have an intimidating uh, effect. So in fact, I've just written about this in the Maimonides Medical Journal. So, you know, it's not Pleasant to talk about, and none of this is pleasant to talk about, but I feel you've got to shine a light on it if you're going to start to disinfect it and start making people understand what it's about. I think a lot of it is coming from the fact the far right has a fascination with Nazi images, and they use it very freely, and I think those are where the link's coming from. There's a fascinating book by a man named Philip Ball who wrote a few years ago about science under Hitler during the Third Reich, and they talk about how they, in a similar way, worked to discredit Einstein in the theory of relativity. They called that, just like vaccines are Jewish science, so was relativity, and as opposed to more muscular Aryan experimental f- physics. And it takes time to really think about how the dots connect. It's not intuitively obvious that there is that very old ancient link between anti-science and anti-Semitism.
0: That's really fascinating, you know. Of course, it never really took a lot uh, to bring out this latent anti-Semitism in uh, society. It was connected to so many different forms of pathology, social pathologies and hatreds. Do you think that they're using the anti-vaccine, anti-science atmosphere to perpetrate and further the anti-Semitism that is in their hearts and lingers just underneath the surface of so much of contemporary society? Or do they have a specific complaint about the Jewish doctors and the Jewish scientists who develop these vaccines? They always point out the connection of the over-representation of Jewish scientists in bringing vaccines to the market.
1: Yeah, it's funny you ask that. I, I got interviewed a couple of years ago for, by Donald McNeil of the New York Times. This he was interviewing him around the time that there was a group of Haredi Orthodox Jewish groups in New York and New Jersey who weren't getting vaccinated and and Donald asked me, "Since when are Jews against vaccines?" And I said, "Donald, they're not against vaccines. We make the vaccines. You know, Sabin, <laughs> as you point out, Sabin and made the polio vaccine, and <laughs> Stan Plotkin the rubella vaccine, and my friend Paul Offit the rotavirus vaccine. I made COVID vaccines and shistosomiasis. He actually printed it. But I think any time there's big social disruption." right? There's always going to be groups that want to blame the Jews. I think that is a component of that as well. And this goes back to the, the years of the Black Death and the plague um, in 1347 to 1351, uh, the Jews were accused of starting the plague and poisoning the wells. And now they go to the ADL site and others, you'll see the horrible tunes of Jews actually cooking up the COVID virus in a lab or of course, blaming a Jewish cabal of Rothschilds and Soros and this kind of stuff. And it's very upsetting, but it's really come off the rails right now. So there's a huge anti-Semitism component now to it.
0: And you think they're riding the wave of just a general rise in anti-Semitism or it's something about Jewish scientists that really gets to them?
1: And it could be both. The ADL is report and their annual reports are clearly showing a big uptick in, in the number of overt instances of anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism, no question, is on the rise the last few years. And so that may be part of it, but there may be something very specific about biomedical science and biomedical scientists. I spoke this year to the holocaust museum houston about what's happening and spoken in a couple of local synagogues as well about what's happening and and i think it's very important that people realize that connection but the level of anti-semitism that i'm seeing is something i i never thought i would have to experience and being targeted by it is I mean, there's nothing worse than opening the mail and seeing a swastika or the emails. And I didn't know how to respond because at first, you know, it's interesting. Your first response is you feel shame, and that's the intent of them, them doing it. And so I had to think for a minute and decide, no, I'm going to put this out in the open and have a discussion and put it out in an academic paper, some of the emails that I'm getting so people can understand those anti-science, anti-Semitism links. Otherwise, if you keep it under wraps, I think it it can only make it worse, as painful as it is to talk about.
0: These personal attacks on you, I can uh, imagine how scary it is. I mean, we get hate mail here almost as an expectation being a prominent synagogue in the heart of New York. But to have people know where you live and to target your uh, home and your work environment can you just describe a little bit for us what that does to you personally?
1: Yeah, no, it clearly messes with your head is the short answer. I mean, when I open my garage in the morning and get the morning paper, I'm always giving second thought to that. I'm trying not to let it limit my activity. And one of the things that I have done now is when I give a public lecture, now that we're doing more and more in person that's happening, we have to notify that they have extra security on hand. And especially if it's a place like the Holocaust Museum, Houston, then security has to be really tight. And so you always have to be mindful of that, both because I'm being targeted in any way by anti-vaccine groups, but also the overlying component of anti-Semitism. So I have two reasons to be concerned. And also, you know, that the fact that you've got far-right extremist groups going after you for both reasons as is, is well. These guys brag about the firearms they have. It's very much linked to toting guns. You know, one of the things that I try to point out is, look, I don't like talking about Republicans and Democrats and liberals or conservatives or red states. And I do it not because I'm trying to discourage people's conservative views, even extreme conservative views. I'm doing it to save lives, to say, look, somehow we have to figure out a way to uncouple the anti science from these discussions because it doesn't belong because too many people are just losing their lives. And as I say, it's not small potatoes. 40,000 deaths in Texas because of anti science aggression, 200,000 deaths nationally. I mean, this is killing more Americans than maybe even things like gun violence or terrorism or all the other things that we think about building infrastructure for, but we don't frame it that way. And I think that's. My contribution here in this instance is trying to say we've got to figure out a way to embark on political solutions so i had a wonderful meeting with the director general of the world health organization in geneva at the end of last year i'm having those discussions with some of the leadership of the white house and i think it's tough because the first response is to say well we'll talk about the infodemic and talking to the social media companies and talking to Meta and Twitter. And I say, sure, that has an important role too, but it doesn't really get to who's generating the content. And I've said, I don't think the health sector knows what to do at this point, but maybe there are people who do in in the political sector who've gone up against terrorism and, and gun violence and might have some innovative ideas on how to mitigate some of this. And again, I consider it part of saving lives. This has sort of been the hard sell with the biomedical community as well. I say, look, you know, yes, I'm co-heading a lab and developing vaccines for poverty- related neglected diseases in COVID-19. It's been given to 100 million people. but it's equally important that we combat the anti-science because that's a killer too. and if we're really true to our mission, then we have to, we have an obligation to combat anti-science.
0: I want to uh, thank you not only on my personal behalf but on uh, behalf of the Jewish community as an American, you're doing not only heroic work but work that really does save lives seeks to advance the human condition in the face of really in some cases inexplicable and irrational hostility where you pay a personal price. so thank you very much for what you do for our country and to save lives and We want to wish you uh, much success, and may you go from strength to strength.
1: Oh, thank you, Rabbi. And just your giving attention to this issue speaks volumes. I really do appreciate it, and I thank you and all the work of you and your colleagues. And your distinguished family in biomedicine as well. And give them my best regards.
0: At one and the same time, this has been an uplifting and discouraging conversation. Uplifting because the doctors and scientists who have worked so tirelessly to save lives during these pandemic years are heroes. They dedicate their lives and careers to healing. They analyze the novel coronavirus swiftly and in record speed developed effective vaccines that have saved millions of lives. And that they doggedly continue their work while being so directly and personally exposed to the steel winds of cold hate should bring forth deep admiration and respect, not only for their scientific brilliance, but also their courage, born of their unshakable commitment to save life. Dr. Hotez kept emphasizing in our conversation, get boosted, don't wait, the vaccines save lives. That message is so urgent for Dr. Hotez that he even asked me to move up the schedule of our podcasts so that our conversation could be aired sooner than we would have otherwise planned, a request we have honored. From his perspective, if even one person who is listening to this is swayed to go out and get the booster, the time he spent with us would have been worth it. When the history of our era is written, the likes of Dr. Fauci, Dr. Hotez, and many of their colleagues on the front line of humanity's war against the coronavirus will shine brightly. They will be remembered for good as representing the best of us. At the same time, I can't avoid feeling disheartened. It should surprise no one that, as Dr. Hotez pointed out, when social disruption increases, anti-Semitism increases. There is a link between anti-science and anti-Semitism. Medicine is science, of course. But given our limited knowledge, diagnosing physiological ailments and prescribing treatments is not like, say, physics, chemistry, or math, where there is only one right answer. The theory of relativity is either right or wrong, But even Einstein was attacked for doing what his haters called Jewish science. Is it Jewish to be right and non-Jewish to be wrong? How ridiculous. It's always the same old story. Dr. Hotez mentioned the Black Plague in 14th century Europe, when Jews were accused of spreading disease by poisoning the drinking wells. Have we advanced all that much in seven centuries? While science and technology have taken huge leaps forward, our moral development has not kept pace. That is the grave danger. We are as inclined towards hate, suspicion, envy, revenge, conspiracy, bias, paranoia, as we have always been. The sad truth of the human condition is that while we have advanced rapidly in the realm of science, we have advanced slowly in the realm of morals. Our lack of moral progress means that we are constantly at risk of destruction. The very science that has liberated so much of humanity from disease, suffering, an early death also threatens our very existence as a species. It is one thing to be critical of policies resulting from what we now know about COVID-19. I do not hold it against anyone, policymaker or scientist, if, with increased information, we conclude that certain early assumptions were wrong. For example, had we been able to do it all over again, we may have reopened schools much more quickly or not closed them at all recognizing that very few children were at risk of severe disease and appreciating better the immense harm of social isolation. Still, it's one thing to debate, even vociferously, the policy and health ramifications of a virus that we still do not understand well. It's quite another thing to attack science itself as liberal or Jewish. The comparisons to the Nazi monster, Joseph Mengele and the use of Holocaust imagery to attack doctors and researchers, many of them Jewish, is obscene and sickening. That this is happening in 21st century America should disquiet and concern all of us, and should sober those who thought that anti-Semitism was a relic of previous times. I want to emphasize that Judaism was never antagonistic to science. It's one reason that so many medical doctors and scientists are Jewish. Mainstream Judaism was too rational, too evidence-based, too open to intellectual debate and stimulation to be opposed to knowledge of any kind, including the natural sciences. As Dr. Hotes said, not only are Jews not opposed to vaccines, we invented them. From a Jewish perspective, religion can never be in conflict with science. The facts can never be blasphemous. Religion can only be ennobled and made more profound by scientific knowledge. Religious people should await with eager anticipation any scientific breakthrough that can help explain the marvels and mysteries of the universe and help advance our understanding of our own place within it. At its best, religion embraces science as a partner whose rigorous methodologies and standards of proof allow for a deeper, more mature religious approach. Science and religion are not contradictory, but complementary, companions in the human quest for knowledge and understanding. Science cannot even begin to provide answers to all the questions of science, let alone questions outside its interests or expertise. There is so much more that we do not know about existence than that which we know. Science has taught us how expansive is the universe and how little we know of it. Moreover, there are questions that science will never even raise, let alone answer. Science asks, is it correct? Religion asks, is it good? Science asks, is it factually right? Religion asks, is it morally right? Science is about particles. Religion is about poetry. For religion, to be or not to be is the question. Science teaches through numbers. Religion teaches through music, symbols, and parables. Science uses chemical equations. Religion uses moral equations. Science tells us what is. Religion tells us what ought to be. Science is about how we got here. Religion is about why we got here. Science explains, religion illuminates. Science convinces, religion animates. Until next time, this is In These Times.